I said this in the first service, but I totally thought his video was going to be like with the beach behind him, so, and just waves crashing, and we were just going to all be envious, and it was going to be really hard to get up here and start after watching something like that, so I'm glad it was pitch black behind him, and we couldn't quite tell that he was actually in Maui, um, but it is so great to be back with all of you here at Hope, and uh, one thing that my husband and I continue to say every single time that we come is it just feels like a family in here. And so you guys really do embody that, and I love that about all of you. And so uh, I do want to tell you guys that my favorite holiday is coming up, and I don't know if there are any of you that feel similarly about this holiday, but my favorite holiday happens to be Thanksgiving. Yes! We got a Thanksgiving warrior standing in solidarity with me. I love it. And I'm one of those that says we cannot set up anything for Christmas until we have eaten. Yes, I got another amen in the back. I love it. Um, my favorite Thanksgiving food is uh, this carrot and turnip mash. And usually it ends up being my dad and I are the only ones that eat it, and which means great leftovers because that's what they Thanksgiving is also about, and I just, I just love everything about Thanksgiving, mostly because it's centered around food, and so hopefully you guys are starting to feel a rumble in your stomach and a little bit hungry, because my goal today is that we would leave all of here feeling hungry, because we are going to talk about food, and so um, I want you guys to take a moment, and if you're not at a table with someone, yell and shout, um, and I'm okay with it getting a little bit noisy in here, I would like you guys to share Share with the people that are around you what your favorite Thanksgiving food is. All right, go, share. Awesome. I love it. I love to hear the chattering, and in fact, I did that intentionally because I wanted it to be hard to call you back to the stage because there's just something about talking about food and meals that brings us together. There's a power in food and meals, and there has been for my entire life. A big part of that was actually my grandma. So I have this <clears throat> Korean grandma who, whether I went to her house announced or unannounced, would always get right to the kitchen and start cooking up a meal. And there was just something about eating with my grandma that I just loved and has just been embedded into our family culture. And now that I live a state away from my grandma, I don't get to have that opportunity very often. And so when I um, do get to talk on the phone with my grandma, who doesn't speak the best English, she usually asks me the same three questions. I could predict the phone call every single time I see her name showing up. And the first question is, what did you eat? <laughs> the second question is, did you pray? And the third question is, did you even pray when you pooped? 
Now, I think I could probably build out a three-week sermon series around those three questions and uh, talking about, you know, the importance of food, which is going to be today's, uh, and then the, you know, how, the lifestyle of modeling prayer and the power of prayer, and then the last being something around that life is super, uh, or naturally supernatural, and uh, in the mundane, we can see and acknowledge God, right? And uh, But today, I'm going to do part one, and even though I'm not coming back the next two weeks, but part one, and we're going to talk about meals together and the power of the table, particularly focused around the idea that the table welcomes. And so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9 today, and before we get there, I want to read this quote for you by a guy named Robert Kerr. He says, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. There's another quote that says, you cannot read the Gospels without getting hungry. If you aren't, you're probably not paying attention. Jesus' life was centered around food. We even see this in the book of John. His first miracle was turning water into wine, drinking. His last miracle was he calls his disciples out who are back out fishing. He has filled their net with fish and he calls them back onto the beach and says, come have breakfast with me. Eating. Food and meals was central to Jesus' life here on earth. By the way, a dream of mine would definitely be having breakfast burritos on the beach with Jesus. And I can, I am waiting for that day. And so in the New Testament, in the Gospels, we see three things, three times, that says specifically what the Son of Man came for, the Son of Man meaning Jesus. So in Mark 10, 45, it says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. In Luke 19.10, we see it says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. These two highlighting Jesus' purpose for why he is to come. The third is his method to these purposes. Luke 7.34 says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Meals are so significant. Meals give us a window into Jesus's message of grace, community, and mission. And those three words are going to be the frameworks in which we're going to look at the table and the meals of Jesus today in scripture. I personally have been impacted by meals, and I'm going to get to that towards the end of this sermon. But I wonder, has there ever been a time in your own life where you have felt belonging at a table or amongst a meal in community? That you felt there was a seat just for you? Meals are so important, and the longer that I have been following and walking with Jesus, I continue to believe this more and more. So much so that a few years ago when we were beginning Tempe Young Lives, which is this outreach to teen moms and their babies, I was preparing to go to camp for the very first time. 
And I had never gone to camp personally up at Lost Canyon, which is in Williams, Arizona. And now I'm preparing to take a bunch of moms and their babies to camp. And so I was thinking to myself, how are we going to promote this? How are we going to get moms to sign up? How are we going to convince them to leave their homes for five days? We're going to take their phones away. And then we're going to throw them in a cabin with 12 other moms and babies. And so we're at this park day. And I have my clipboard there. I'm ready to take sign-ups. And I was chatting with one of the moms. And she goes, oh, I've been to camp. I said, when? And she was like, well, when I was in junior high, before I had my child, I actually went to camp. And so I experienced it. I said, great. Okay, I'm going to get all the moms to sign up, and, and you're going to tell them why they should sign up. And so it was that time, and so she climbs up on this cement picnic table, and she stands strong, and she looks out, and she says, all y'all, and she uses a term not appropriate for church, and she says, listen up and sign up on Liz's clipboard. We're going to go to camp. You want to know why? We get three meals a day, family style. It wasn't the pool, the rock climbing wall, the zip line. It was the fact that they got to eat. And what was embedded in her memory of her time at junior high, a junior higher from camp experience, wasn't that she got to go on a rock climbing wall and horseback riding and arrow tag. It was the fact that three times a day she sat around a table with people just like her and had real conversations. That was what was most impactful. And then my clipboard was signed up. And we took a bunch of moms to camp. That is how powerful and important meals are. There's this quote, and it says, Few acts are more expressive of companionship than the shared meal. Someone with whom we share food is likely to be our friend or well on their way to becoming one. So the word companion in Latin is cum panis. And cum means together, and panis means bread. Together, bread. If I ever open up a sandwich shop, I'm calling it companion. <laughs> but right, there's few things in life that show us companionship than that of eating together. We know this because when we evaluate the meals that we eat every week, it's likely with the people who are closest to us or most important to us. Jesus, fun fact, if you want to learn who was closest to him or most important to him, look at who he ate with, and you can find the same thing out. So what does it look like to follow Jesus, especially in this way? Here's the reality. Meals were also the biggest point of tension in Jesus' ministry. Jesus got criticized more for who he ate with and how he ate with people than any other practice. It wasn't the driving out of demons and the healing people. It was criticism over his table. 
So today we're going to look at just one in Matthew 9 of his tables, which there are many. Go, go through and, and read about his tables. They're so fascinating, and I love it. And then get hungry. So after this, we should all go eat lunch together. But the context for Matthew 9 is this. So Matthew 9 comes right after one of Jesus' most famous and well-known sermons, right after the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew 8 through 10 begins this section of scripture where there's this crazy downfall of the kingdom and its power activating all throughout. We're seeing the leper people here, the, uh, healed, the storm being calmed. We're seeing all this happening and tucked in the middle of there, Jesus calls Matthew, a tax collector, to follow him. And then they go and have dinner. And so let's read it together. Matthew 9, 9 through 13. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Scandalous. The calling of Matthew a tax collector. A sellout in their society. Likely one of the most hated people because he was working actively for the enemy, the Romans, who were the ones who were at rule. He was likely lonely. He likely didn't have friends. He likely never had visitors at his house. So Jesus says, come and follow me. And also we're going to go right now to have dinner at your house with all these people. <laughs> dinner at someone's house is extremely intimate and personal, yeah? Matthew didn't have time to rush home, clean it up, light some candles, turn on soft music. They headed straight there. And Jesus invites sinners. He invites his friends, the disciples. The Pharisees are starting to check them out from a distance. I love the smell of this verse. Have you ever thought what scripture smells like? They're sitting at this table, and it's likely even a pigsty. And Jesus is saying, I'm okay with your messiness. I'm okay with you just as you are. I'm okay with all of this, and I'm going to invite people into this. Because this table that Jesus creates is a table of grace. It's a table of grace. And so in verse 10, we see it's not just Matthew, the tax collector, and it's not just Jesus' disciples, the few that he has called up to this point. But it's also the quote-unquote sinners. And it says in verse 10, 
While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and quote-unquote sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Why is it in quotes? Why is it in quotes? Well, we would have known that the Jews of this day would have never gone to a meal like this. And they would have viewed other Jews attending this meal as sinners. The Jews of this day were a part of this holiness renewal movement called the Pharisees that they believed that if I could just double down on all my rituals, if in our own strength we could just be more clean, more holy, more obedient, then God would release us from being under the impression of the Romans. Have you ever felt that way? Sometimes I feel like a Pharisee. If I could just in my own will, if I could just be more obedient, if I could just be more strong in this area of my life, I'm more like a Pharisee than I thought. The Jews, the Pharisees, also believed that they were the only all-in people. They were the people of the book. They knew the truth. They would have completely avoided situations like this table because of cross-contamination. They would have also believed that Jesus in this act was contaminating himself and guilty because of the association of that table. These quote-unquote sinners to the Pharisees would have been the lax the ones that let things slide, the ones that don't really know the truth, the lukewarm. I don't know if you've ever looked at anyone that way. Or maybe someone has looked at you like that. I mean, how can you vote for that person if you're a Christian? If you really follow Jesus, how could you check yes on that prop? Or a weak Away, out of elections, right? Like, I've had these thoughts. I have been just like the Pharisees, judging these sinners that are sitting with Jesus. So the Pharisees ask this question in verse 11. They ask, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Do the tables that we sit at or that we create cause others in our life to ask us how or why? Do the tables that we sit at cause the world around us to be curious about who Jesus is? Are you sitting with people who think differently, believe differently, think they know differently than you? Proximity changes everything. And Jesus is modeling that here. I heard once that there's a difference of feeding the hungry than actually inviting the hungry to your own table.
God's table of welcome creates and envisions this new table of community. So verse 12 says, On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I love this quote. I think I have it on the screen. We are at verse 12, by the way. And the quote is by John Tyson, and it says, If God is about saving people, he has to go to the people who need salvation. If God is about healing people, it's about other people and who are actually sick. And the Pharisees completely missed the heart of God's mission in the world. They thought it was about preserving moral purity. But for God's heart, it was about rescuing sick humanity. You see, the tables that the uh, Jewish people and the Pharisees would have set up would have been extremely structured, and you could have walked in to one of their meals and known the rank of everyone at the table by how they sat. And people usually got stuck in a position, and you weren't really moving up because it was like the highest of the highs and then the lowest of the lows and the least of these. There was no sense of interaction with one another of people who were different than you at their tables at all. And I I love that Jesus is saying this because he's saying it's not the healthy but the sick. We have to envision a different type of community and also mission at these tables. In verse 13, he goes on to tell them, he says, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus is giving a two-step manual and process right here for the Pharisees. He's saying, step one, he quotes Hosea 6.6, which they would have been very well versed to and known. And he says, it says in Hosea 6.6, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. So step one here, Jesus is saying, acknowledge God and show the priority of mercy at your tables. And then step two was what Jesus was modeling, which was this embodiment of a wide welcome of people that the Pharisees would have considered unworthy to eat at that table. God's table welcomes a place for mission to happen. For mission to happen. And I particularly feel this one super close to home. Because there's one meal that I could go back to in my life that completely changed the trajectory of my entire life. I was a senior in high school. I was playing varsity basketball. My co-captain kept inviting me to church. And I was like, no thank you. Not interested. And so after months of her asking me, she says, Liz, you should come with me tonight. Unlimited breadsticks and salad. (laughs) And so I said, all right, I'm in. 
So she came and she picked me up and she drove me to this local restaurant and they had rented out this whole back patio. And I was so nervous. I didn't know these people. I had never done anything like this before. And we walk in and I could see through the clear glass doors all these women around this gigantic table and they're laughing and they clearly know each other and I don't know anyone. And I started to begin to hear the voice of shame. You do not belong here. They will not accept you after they know what you have done. And I started to get crippled at this doorway. And I looked out, and there was one woman who locked eyes with me. And she got up from the table, and she walked directly up to me, and she throws her hands up in the air, and she goes, Liz Martin. She knew my name. She had been coming to cheer on my friend at our basketball games. And I felt at that moment that my name went through my ears and it landed in my heart as welcome home. And it was this moment that I felt belonging for the first time in my life. And she had a seat saved just for me. And we walked to that table. And that night I witnessed for the very first time a group of real women having real conversations about real life. And it ended with real faith in them praying with one another and sharing their needs. And it was all because of unlimited breadsticks and salad. I need to recreate that someday in my life. And I got in the car afterwards, and I were driving home, and my friend's radio and CD player uh, was broken, and so it was just silent. And I looked at my friend, and I said, what was that? And she says two words, just Jesus. And I was like, okay, we're seniors in high school. That wasn't the most theological thing she could have told me. Or like this Romans road, here's how you can go and follow Jesus, right? But at that moment, something, a seed was planted inside of me to actually want to know and remain curious for the rest of my life about who this Jesus was. And so that night, where we pull up into the driveway and I ask her, what do I need to do? And she goes, I don't know. Go, go, talk, go talk to him. I'm like, what? <laughs> so I sat on the edge of my bed that night, and I introduced myself to God. And I said, God, my name is Elizabeth Ashley Martin, and I was born on December 28th, 1989. And I began to tell God my life story as if he hadn't already known. And I remember finishing that prayer, and I remember this deep sense of peace that I felt. It was the first time in my life that I felt fully loved and fully known. Oh, I didn't cry in the first service. Woo! This is what the table creates. The table creates a place for great grace to be on display, for God's community to be one, and for mission to take place for the people in our lives I'd like to say this, the table is community. 
Those put on the outside by tradition are let into the inside. It's a vision of inclusion versus exclusion. God says at his table, you belong. There might be somebody in this room right now that needs to hear that. That needs to hear that there's an RSVP at the table with your name on it. That you can drop your shame at the door and you can be met with the powerful God who knows you by name. And that when he says your name, it can land in your heart as welcome home. You are all fully loved and fully known. The table is also a table of grace. It's a place of healing, both spiritual and social. A place of ministering to our deepest needs. At God's table, he tells you, you are whole. Now, this is scary a little bit. Because the table has traditionally also been a place of great divide, right? Like the parent table versus the kid table, so to speak, metaphorically. Right? I can think and also smell family fights and heated arguments and unfinished meals that have been left at a table because of disagreement. And I believe that the enemy is actually out to seek and kill and destroy in this way because the table and meals is God's sacred place and his design for us to experience life in life to the full with one another. If it's not a table of grace, it's going to keep continuing to be a table of divide. We get to be the peacemakers at the table. The table is also a table of mission, a place to share radical and scandalous love of neighbor. God is telling you at the table, you are empowered by the spirit of God. Now, As being people, we're going to be sent out of here. One thing I would like to ask is I continue to have to check my own heart before I go to these meals. Because we all have our own biases and agenda. And there's some important work that we must do between ourselves and God. And ask him, where are the ways that I am polluting this table of grace? Where am I bringing my own self-righteousness or selfish ambition into this table because of this thing that I would like to be an outcome? Instead of just letting the table and the power of the table that welcomes do the organic work that God has intended for it to do. And lastly, the table is fill in the blank. Consider your own tables. What components and etiquette, table etiquette, would you guys like to have? What do you desire for your table? How can you pray at this table as it is in heaven and what might show up? 
Something sweet about the newlywed season that my husband and I are in is that we are envisioning what we would like our table to look like. What kind of components and DNA do we want? What values do we want at our table? And something that we have been talking about recently is that we want to be a family that does not withhold blessing. When we see it, we say it. People need to be told who they are. In God. We need that reminder now more than ever before. And that's just one example of the things that we would like that when people come to our dinner table, that they would leave that night being blessed. And that if we see something, we would not withhold the blessing from them. So, what is it in the 1,095 meals that you get every year, if you're eating three meals a day, that you would like the people that you're eating with to experience? at this table as it is in heaven. We have 21 meals just this week alone, y'all. If you were to give up just one for someone in your life who is desiring to be met by the grace of God and to know true belonging, what could that look like? And I'll finish this quote as I invite the worship team back up. And it's a quote by Peter Lightheart, and he says this. For Jesus' feast was not just a metaphor for the kingdom. As Jesus announced the feast of the kingdom, he also brought it into reality through his own feasting. Unlike many theologians, he did not come preaching an ideology, promoting ideas, or teaching moral maxims. He came teaching about the feast of the kingdom. And he came feasting in the kingdom. Jesus did not go around merely talking about eating and drinking. He went around eating and drinking a lot. So as we get commissioned to think through sharing just one meal a week or maybe envisioning our Thanksgiving table that is coming up here in just a week and a half, I think? How can we pray at this table as it is in heaven? When I think of heaven, I think of this long table, this great feast of many tribes and many tongues, probably also this crazy charcuterie board. But I think about how can we create this table to be a preview and a glimpse of the kingdom to come. That when people walk away, they say, what was it about that table? And they begin to be curious in their lives about who Jesus is. And so for the practicals in the room, look at your calendar today. Talk with your roommates, your spouse, your kids. What do we want? What components do we want our table to look like? For those that maybe are hearing something else today, maybe it is that voice of shame that's clouding you. Maybe it is that I don't actually believe that that table has a seat for me. I want to encourage you to face the kindness of God's face. God is laser eye making eye contact with you as you walk through those doors, greeting you by name. And it's his kindness 
that welcomes you to his table to come just as you are. And so through this last song, either meditate on these words, I think this song is so beautiful, or spend time praying and just asking God to bring things to mind, heal certain things that might need healing, and help you to envision the table as it is in heaven. Let me pray. God, you are our great feast. You are our greatest companion. You are our great grace. And in this moment, we ask, Jesus, that you would allow us to evaluate our own hearts, our tables, the seats that we have filled and the seats that we have empty and give us eyes to see what we need to see in this moment. In your mighty name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.